So I get on my bike with my flat tires, almost flat tires, and I ride down to his house. My friend Peter, oh, it's a crime. You're riding your World Championship bike with flat tires. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 123 of the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's riding their world championship bike with flat tires. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash taper. And yes, we are starting with a review today. Excellent resource, five stars, by BitPuddle from the US. If you are serious about cycling, once you get past the gear infatuation, you have to think about serious, structured training. Damien does a great job exploring topics around coaching and training approaches, performance evaluation, and learning from seasoned pros. He does touch on gear, but rarely gets caught up in fads. I always get something useful out of each podcast, often things I can work on in my training. My only criticism is that he sometimes gets a little too caught up in the cult of suffering. But overall, this is an excellent podcast. Thank you, BitPuddle, for writing that review on suffering. There is a quote from Bill Bradley that sums it up for me. There has never been a great athlete who died not knowing what pain is. I believe pain and suffering is intertwined with sport and cycling. But yeah, I guess I like it maybe just a little too much. And if you like the show, I would love a review on either iTunes or Stitcher because five stars makes me go... Thank you very much. And now the performance probe this week. Probe number one, carbohydrate availability and exercise training adaption. Too much of a good thing? So traditional nutritional approaches to endurance training have typically promoted high carbohydrate availability before, during, and after training sessions to ensure adequate muscle substrate to meet the demands of high daily training intensities and volumes. However, during the past decade, data from labs like the people that did this study and others have demonstrated that deliberately training in conditions of reduced carbohydrate availability can promote training-induced adaptions of human skeletal muscle and in some instances improve exercise capacity. This data has led to the concept of training low but competing high whereby selected training sessions are completed in conditions of reduced carbohydrate availability so they promote the training adaption but carbohydrate reserves are restored immediately prior to an important competition. It's also noted here that the optimal practical strategies to train low are not currently known and consuming additional caffeine, protein and practicing carbohydrate mouth rinsing before and or during training may help to rescue some reduced training intensities that typically occur when training low in addition to preventing protein breakdown and maintaining optimal immune function. 
Finally, athletes should practice train low workouts in conjunction with sessions undertaken with normal or high carbohydrate availability so that their capacity to oxidize carbohydrates is not blunted on race day. That's an interesting concept. What I get from this meta study is that there are no protocols out there that specifically say this is how you should train low, but they do recommend that you train low and high so that you're not affecting your body's response to carbohydrates when it comes to race day and you're all fueled up for the event. Now, probe number two, high performance, complex simplicity. It's an article on sportscientist.com by Ross Tucker and It's from his insights gained from a talk at Bases Conference in the UK given by the Great Britain track cycling team. He's got three quick thoughts that were inspired during this talk. And the first one is doing things better, management and synchronization. And he goes on to say that there has always been a lot of talk about innovation being the difference. If innovation is either doing new things or doing the old things in a new way, then innovation is not where the answer lies. What's different, at least from the outsider's perspective, is the management and synchronization of all of these components into what looks from the outside to be a fairly simple system. So rather than being new things or new ways, it's just more of the same things better. Number two, financial advantage and sports selection. The cost is enormous, human, time, and financial, in order to generate and then manage intellectual capital. It's not difficult to see why in a niche sport such as track cycling that this would create an enormous advantage. And it's a true competitive advantage because unless another nation with comparable cycling culture, expertise, and resources were to match the investment, it would be an advantage that cannot be overcome. This is really interesting. When you think about the lower levels of cycling and teams, say, at a national level or a county level, not having the money that pro teams have, they are definitely at a disadvantage as a team. Maybe there can be some individual performances that beat pros or whatever, but generally as a team, this could explain why if you're a pro world tour team, you will stay at that level generally and no one's going to be coming up and defeating you convincingly throughout an entire season. But he goes on to say that track cycling in particular is more science, less sport. Number three, the final one, complex simplicity by understanding the problem. For me, this is the key concept from the article. And he talks about that you could do a lot worse simply stripping away whatever it is you coach or you play or you work in to really understand what goes into the outcome. It seems that what successful sporting systems have in common is that they appear to do the basics well. And this is overused and it's a tired cliche, but he believes that the truth is that simply doing the basics in a competitive environment is not going to be enough to win. He qualifies this by saying that someone could be doing the basics version 2.0 or the basics plus one and then they defeat you. So what appears to be the presence of basics in a successful team is actually the optimization of the fundamentals, which is a much better way to think about it. And this is what I believe separates great teams and successful companies. The UK track cycling system philosophy achieves a similar thing by reverse engineering the requirements of the sport, then identifying the athlete who might meet those requirements and then systematically working towards ticking them off that list of requirements. 
We've seen a lot of performance systems over the time that semi-pro cycling has been around, from Red Bull to deep dives into the GB's system. But when we look at systems and you break them down, they're mechanical, systematic, and eventually pretty simple once you get down to the basic elements of it. But he brings up that getting down to these basic elements only comes from rigorous, complex understanding of all the components and how they work together, which an interesting bit of news that I picked up recently is that Australian Cycling's High Performance Unit just received a huge grant to create a new holistic system covering the exact same areas as UK Cycling's philosophy. So it shows that they're trying to continue to move forward and make this system as simple as possible, but they've got to go through the complexities. And the complexities in this era come down to big data and how they actually use the information wisely to come up with the protocols or the studies or the training that they're actually going to roll out to the athletes. Tucker moves on and mentions that coaches who feel under-resourced by all of this information shouldn't disempower themselves because what is needed in this system is to spend much more time on the questions, asking hundreds of questions, sometimes a dozen different ways, and then figuring out what the key questions or problems are really will help to get grips with the problem and then move towards finding the answers. So he wraps up finally by saying some problems will be prohibitively expensive, but many are not. So the lesson, even from this multi-million pound system, is to get complex with the problem so that you can get simple with the practices. Alrighty, let's move on to the nuts and bolts. And this week, peaking and tapering revisited. I have spoken about tapering way back in episode 46. And while the basic fundamentals have stayed the same since then, I have changed my mind on the different ways to taper for an event. This refined strategy comes from more experience and being able to work with more athletes to see the actual effects of different strategies. We will touch on what the right tapering strategy for you is while tapering Tapering is not generally top of mind all year round. It's important even when it's not happening, meaning you should be thinking about it while you're planning your season and going through the season. The essence of peaking is building in training stress, overload, and progressing by manipulating intensity and frequency. These are basic principles of training because It's only when you put these together that when you get close to your A or your B event, all you are doing is letting the fitness rise to the top. So when you are building fitness throughout the year, you're stressing your body. And in some ways, the detail of the training session is not as important as the training effect, meaning that you can get an adaption from four intervals when it may be that there are eight down to do. So sometimes you can let yourself off for failing to complete a workout exactly as it's written down. As part of this overload principle, training is good for fitness, but it's also what causes fatigue, which can hinder training. And this is the balance between the two, which becomes evident when you are trying to taper. 
Think about training in a way that builds fitness but also fatigues you. And this is shown graphically through the supercompensation chart. If you're familiar with any degree of training science, then you will have seen this chart. And any training load will fatigue you. It's as simple as that. But the adaptions to intensity and frequency are very individual. So it's not as easy as just prescribing the same thing to everybody that comes in and wants to do better. The other part of all of this is how you recover. And this has the potential to really hurt your fitness because we are looking for ways to build fitness over time. And then supercompensation can work in a couple of ways. It not only can build fitness, but it builds that fatigue. So if you don't rest enough, then you can get negative supercompensation, which for me is the slow death of your fitness. There definitely will be times that you'll be digging a hole, but then if either through scheduled or monitored recovery days or weeks, you'll be able to lift out of that. And that will be the difference between a program being too easy, too hard, or optimal and giving you the optimal training effect. And this is where the taper comes in. It allows adequate recovery pre-event. And periodization is the key here. And it ensures that this build and recovery over time allows you or your coach to manage the load effectively. And this is why it's important to think about it in the off-season. Because if you don't plan your training around specific races or events, then you might not be at optimal fitness at the exact time that you need it. And speaking of optimal fitness, what is it? This is where peaking comes in and this word peaking, but peaking can be defined as the process by which an athlete reaches optimal physiological and psychological readiness through a process of planning training around specific events. Answer this question for me. Have you ever felt like this? Have you ever felt this peaking, this mythical idea and feeling that everything is going right, your body's working perfectly, you can do no wrong, you have the right amount of confidence, you do things at every moment of a race that are perfect. Have you ever felt that moment? Because personally, it is possible, but I think it is always hard to get this exactly when you want. And that's why we're slowly with numbers and the new science and technology, we're able to narrow this down because there are a lot of times when you might have this feeling either before or after an event. And this is really important to note because this helps you plan your next taper. This information, this intel helps you actually get inside what's going on your body and your mind and try and plan the next taper around what happened last time. So it's just tweaking it and adjusting it so that it's better the next time. And I've got an example from a recent taper that I went through with an athlete building towards a big one-day race. And this was the first taper that we'd done as a coach and athlete. So there's always a learning curve between the both of us. And as this athlete is very experienced, we work together on a plan. In the end, though, I actually planned out training that was a little bit different to what the athlete had done before. So the athlete didn't complete it as planned. And what was the result of that? The race was a moderate success, not a win, but very, very close. And in the race report, the athlete had a hard race mentally and physically, cramping severely with over a third of the race remaining. So no amazing sensations on that day. It wasn't until after a couple of light days and another race that the sensations were there. So the athlete was actually smashing it a few days later and pulled out their best performance in this type of racing all year. 
And just to highlight this, I'm going to read just a couple of bits and pieces from their ride and their race report. And the athlete went through citing that they felt surprisingly good. They got up to a high heart rate and they were riding away from a lot of good riders at the top of a hill. And my favorite quote is, I felt strangely good, actually. The report continues for a race that was later that day. I felt really good, got fourth after a long breakaway and doing a lot of work. Felt I was the strongest there. This is the first ride I actually felt race fit and in control at high intensities. I could really push the pace and hold threshold with ease. So as soon as I heard this, I was like, okay, what happened? What happened? Why is it a few days late? And I replied by saying, your stress balance is in the neutral zone, minus 10 to plus 10 TSB. So my guess for this would be that the week of low volume was starting to show itself a little bit later than expected. And for me, this indicates that a longer taper is probably needed before the next major event. But here's the punchline because the athlete replied with, Ah, so I should have listened to you when you added the extra day of rest in there last week. So that could have changed the actual sensations and race result on the big race day. But it's all learning. It's learning for me. It's learning for the athletes I coach. And it's interesting how this works. So when we get to the next taper for this athlete, I will know exactly what to do. And the athlete will be able to trust me to deliver them in top form because I think there was a little bit of uncertainty there from both sides. And that showed up in the confidence of myself and it showed up in the confidence of the athlete. So how do you reach your peak? The word tapering is thrown around here, and tapering is defined as a period of reduced physiological and psychological stress to enhance the physiological adaptations and optimize performance. The areas to consider when planning a taper are the reduction of training load because there are different ways that you can reduce the load, management of fatigue and physiological adaptions by adjusting training load, the type of taper, the taper duration, and the performance goals of the athlete. So the aims of a taper, the big thing to wrap your head around is that there is a positive and a negative effect in every single taper. Sometimes a taper is about giving up a little bit of your fitness by not training intensely for 10 to 14 days in exchange for performance. There is not much fitness in a taper. It's about getting you fresh. As a reminder, here's what I said last time about once you enter the taper period, it's not time to get fit. So in your taper, you cut volume and maintain intensity, then the benefits which have been scientifically proven start to appear. And I've only picked out four major ones. There is a whole bunch of benefits that have actually been proven. You increase your maximal oxygen intake by up to 6%. You increase your blood and red cell volume. Muscle glycogen increases progressively. And there is increased muscular strength and power. So with all these benefits, let's get down to the nitty gritty on how you taper. And there are endless ways to taper, so it's not going to be easy for me to get this across to you because there's so many different kinds of combinations. And here are four frameworks that you can use. You can either taper linear, so that's reducing the training load in a straight line, step where it's just one big chunk down and you just step down to the reduction in one go. There's progressive non-linear, which is a slow over a longer period of time. Then there's progressive non-linear fast, which is just getting it down as soon as possible over time. So what is best for you? And 
Honestly, there is no simple answer because of all these different factors, events, your training age, how well you want to do in this race, where you are, you know, where your fitness got to before you started to taper. There is no simple answer. It's very individual and it does, like the example, take some trial and error. The top considerations here though are type of taper, so the shape that you want it to look like, manipulation of training stress and the length of taper. So here's what the latest science recommends. A reduction of training volume, that's volume, not frequency, so you don't get any extra days off. No change in intensity of frequency. You want to keep frequency to at least 80% of previous training. Optimal reduction in training volume by 40 to 60%, and some maintenance work is vital to keeping the fitness that you have. It is also possible to get a little more granular when tapering when using a power meter. And here are some extra guidelines, starting with the recommended length. Again, the length of a taper varies depending on each rider, as does the training stress balance. Your best performances are generally, but not always, associated with a positive training stress balance. And hence, it is desirable to plan training so that your CTL is high and your TSB is sufficiently positive. You are able to plan your reduction in training load more accurately with a power meter because remember, you don't want to just stop riding. So you plan a focused reduction in volume. An example of this would be a minus three ramp rate with a focus increase in intensity to target your event requirements. When it comes to somebody that's sitting at a CTL of around 90 to 110, then pulling things out too drastically may cause problems. And if you want to err on the side of caution, then pull out focused workouts that result in high TSB first emphasize things that are race-specific to build confidence and shorten the duration of maintenance aerobic workouts to what I'd say is the bare minimum and allow for some super solid compensation by taking complete days off and allowing for complete recovery before the race. So some more specific guidelines for tapering with a power meter. It depends on your event, of course, and your CTL. And like I said, I wouldn't bother really giving up any CTL for freshness at less than around 75 CTL. If you're peaking for a long road race or a cross-country marathon, the one that carries the most fitness will win, not the one that will give the most freshness. So stay around plus 10, which is just at the top of the neutral zone. Three to five day road race or mountain bike stage race have a higher TSB than for a single day race. You want to be greater than plus 10. A shortish taper, 10 days or less, depending on your starting TSB. I say a short taper because a shorter taper can be planned to deliver you with the same TSB as a longer taper, but with less of a CTL hit. I would focus on bringing TSB to a relatively high positive level just prior to a five-day stage race. I say relatively high TSB as a target because five days of racing has the potential of driving TSB quite low, and I use relatively because the absolute number is relative to your CTL and especially your ATL time constraints. If you are getting ready for a cyclocross criterium or cross-country Olympic race, you can be between minus 10 and plus 15 because peak power matters a lot. Okay, so I'm going to wrap it up here with an example of a 14-day taper for a 40-kilometer time trial, a event. 
And if we start on a Monday, you have one hour of zone four, low zone four work with two by five minutes all out and 20 minutes recovery between those. So that's quite high intensity and it's close to the highest intensity that you're going to get for the next 14 days. Tuesday moves through to 75 minutes easy, including six times one minute at 120 RPMs. Wednesday, one hour of zone two, one hour of sweet spot, and six times one minute at 350 watts and 120 RPM. Thursday, one hour of zone two. Friday, race simulation ridden at 90% of race pace. Saturday, two hours of zone two. Sunday, a half race simulation. Monday is one and a half hours recovery, so we're getting close to the race now. Tuesday, 30 minutes at max, 75 minutes easy, including six times one minute at 120 RPM. Wednesday, one hour easy with three times one kilometer, all out, two at max speed and one at sweet spot. Thursday, one hour at mid zone three. Friday off, Saturday, 45 minutes easy, and then a race on Sunday. Whether you use this exact taper or not will depend on where you are and the type of race you're doing. Whatever taper you end up with after going through this process and trying to work it out, remember the biggest thing for me is to take as many notes down as possible when tapering, including the days leading up to the race and weeks after. Because that way, you can really start to hone down your taper into a repeatable set of steps and you can then worry about getting your head right for race day. Okay, the tech hacks and products section and this week it's a gum. Run gum. It's a caffeinated gum. It's there for your pre-race dose of caffeine that has traditionally been through two main caffeine delivery systems, coffee and energy drinks. There are a couple of other ones, the 200 milligram per tablet no-dose and the 100 milligram per hit caffeine inhaler AeroLife, but I'm not going to mention those, and I'm not going to go into the benefits of caffeine either, though. Simply offer this as a new way of ingesting caffeine that might help you avoid stomach problems pre-race. Each packet has two 50-milligram pieces of gum. It's sugar-free gum, and it comes in mint and a fruit flavor. It's not recommended to ride with the gum. It's more about chewing the gum beforehand with the intention of spitting it out before the race. It comes in a 12-pack for 18 bucks. You can also subscribe and get a monthly pack of either 12, 24, or 36 for 17, 32, or 45 bucks respectively. So if caffeine is your thing, but coffee pre-race isn't, then perhaps give this a try. And now that quote from the top of the show, it's Stephen Roche, the 87 triple crown holder, talking about wanting to go for a bike ride five months after his retirement. And the only bike that he had was his world champ bike that was up in the attic. It had flat tires. He had no pump. So he was riding it to his buddy's house to get it filled up. I like that story. I think it's pretty cool. And that's it. You have been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash taper to find any links used in this week's episode. From there, you can click on any coaching link on the site or visit semiprocycling.com forward slash coaching for more information on our coaching packages. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 